Well, in December of 2017, there was a night that our family will never forget. As Ginger, my wife, was working, we were living in Southern California in Ventura, but she worked in the neighboring city, Santa Paula, and we got word from some of her co-workers that there was a fire in Santa Paula and in California. Many of you know, that's just the words that cause everyone to be on high alert and a little anxiety shoots through everybody. And so we drove up on a hill, and we looked at Santa Paula, and we could see the glow, but honestly, it didn't look like it was going to be too significant. And so we went back to our house. And without us knowing it, over the next few hours, that fire would continue to grow. And, and the worst thing that could happen did happen, and that is a strong wind changed directions and began to blow that fire and feed it. And all of a sudden, that fire, which wasn't that significant just a few hours earlier, late into the night, became a massive fire that began to shoot down a canyon with extreme drought conditions. And all that brush just fed it more and more, and it came straight for our town, Ventura. Ventura is a coastal town, and we lived on the east side, so we were the first residential area to see it coming. And you could see the fire coming down, and we just thought, man, this just looks like something you see in the movies, right? We, we're Texans. We don't know what we're doing in this situation. We're looking around, trying to figure out what are the neighbors doing, what are the local officials telling us to do. And then the fire got within just a few hundred yards from our house in that residential area. And then as the wind continued to feed it, we began to see the embers coming over our neighborhood. And, and then we knew we were in trouble. And and we did what I'd never done in my life, and that is we began to water our house, right? And we're watering on the roof and trying to hold off the embers. And, and at some point, everybody had to do what they had to do. And most of our neighborhood, as ashes were all over us, and you could feel the panic and a little bit of chaos. And people at some point just decided to put what they could put in their car, walked out in these little bags of important things, and they begin to scatter from our neighborhood. In fact, people just literally left not knowing where they were going to go and not knowing if the house would be there when they got back. Uh, fortunately for our neighborhood, we were spared, but hundreds of houses in Ventura were lost, including several of our closest friends and some of the staff in our church who not only lost their house, but decades worth of memories in, in an instant. I tell that story because it's not only a night we will never forget to sit in that moment and realize we're leaving at the last minute unexpectedly, not knowing where we're going or what we'll come back to with just a handful of precious things, including our family, the people that matter the most. And I think that's exactly the story we're going to look at today in Acts chapter 8. You remember the story of, of what's been going on? The Spirit, Holy Spirit came and all these thousands of Christians are coming to know Jesus. And all of a sudden the persecution began to rise a little bit. It's like a fire in a distance though. It's not that bad. It doesn't look significant. We saw it in Acts chapter 4 where James and John were going before the Sanhedrin. They were even put in jail for the night. But then they were released so it's not a big deal. But the wind kept blowing and the fire continued to grow. And all of a sudden in Acts chapter 5, we see all the disciples being jailed and being persecuted and beaten. And all of a sudden the embers begin to sprinkle ahead and we know we're in trouble. Something's changed. And then the ultimate murder we see in Acts chapter 7 where Stephen becomes the first martyr as he is stoned. And now we know something has changed in the air. 
and there's no turning back. And then we get to the very beginning of Acts chapter 8, and we saw it where it says that Saul was literally going from house to house, and he was dragging Christians out of their houses, men and women, and putting them in prison. And now's the moment where all these Christians in Jerusalem are literally grabbing their belongings, leaving their houses, being scattered, not knowing where to go, but it's too dangerous to stay, and they don't know if they'll ever be back. I can't imagine. We just got a tiny little taste of what that night feels like. But for these folks, this was so much more permanent and so much more dangerous and so hurried in that moment. And in the shadow of a murder, all of Christianity was on the run. And that's where we pick up the story today. In the middle of the chaos, I always thought I'd love to follow one of the stories. And today we get to, there's one person whose story we now pick up, who's just fleeing. And we get to watch what happens to him. His name is Philip. You may not be familiar with Philip's story because he just shows up here and he goes away. He's a very humble man. He's one of the seven deacons in Acts 6, just like Stephen was last week. Well, Philip is the, another one of those deacons. And he shows up as a faithful, humble man of God. Remember, God tends to use the humble to do great things, and here he is. He's on the run, just like all the Christians are. And let's pick up his story. In Acts chapter 8, if you've got your Bibles, I hope you'll turn with me there. If you don't have a Bible, look in the pew in front of or behind you. You'll find a Bible there. Please feel free to borrow that. We're going to jump into verse 4 in just a minute. And so we'll put some of these verses on the screen. But if you have your Bible, there's an extra treat for you because we're going to look at an extra couple of verses before we even begin in Acts chapter 8, verse 4. First, I want us to look back at verse 1 because it so sets up all the rest of the book of Acts. It's such an important passage. Let's just look at that one together. Acts chapter 8 verse 1 says, And Saul approved of the killing of who? Who, who just died in Acts chapter 7? Would you tell me his name? It starts with an S. His name is? Whew, I had to give you a cue because if you wouldn't have known, I would have felt so bad up here. Thank you. All right, so he killed Stephen or, or they killed Stephen and, and Saul approved. And then the latter part of that verse, it says, And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. So this is all the church. All the Christians are being persecuted. And watch this. And all, and I, I, this is, these next three words just blow me away. Except the apostles were scattered throughout, say these next three words with me, Judea and Samaria. Uh, thank you. Those of you who have your Bibles, you're ready. See, you get, you get to help me out. Thank you for that. All except the apostles. Why did the apostles not go? Why did the apostles stay behind in Jerusalem? And everyone else, literally all, went elsewhere to Judea and Samaria. Remember, we know because of our memory verse in Acts 1.8 that Jesus wants us to go to Judea and Samaria. He said, I want you to be witnesses, not only in Jerusalem, but up to this point, they've only been witnesses in Jerusalem. Why did the apostles not leave? Here's the real truth. Here's the real answer to that. I don't know. Like, I have no idea. You read different scholars and they'll tell you different reasons why they think it could be. But the truth is the Bible doesn't tell us why they didn't leave. Did they have responsibilities? But I will tell you this. I can't help but think human nature would do this. If you saw your Lord Jesus crucified and then rose again from the dead and you got to interact with the risen Savior for 40 days in Jerusalem... And then you saw him ascend into heaven in Jerusalem, from Jerusalem. And then you saw the Holy Spirit come into that upper room 
in Jerusalem. And then you saw miracle after miracle after miracle take place in Jerusalem. You saw thousands, maybe tens of thousands, come to Christ in Jerusalem. Why would you leave Jerusalem, right? Like God's blessing, God's hand is on it. It would be hard to leave all these people who've come to know Christ. But when you look up, guess what? They're leaving. Why are they leaving? Because of persecution. And this is the pivot verse in Acts where we go from Jerusalem and for the first time the gospel begins to go beyond the walls of Jerusalem and begins to go to Judea and Samaria. It's such an important verse. And here's what I want to see before we even dive in today in verse 4 we pick up Philip's story. There's one important lesson we're going to see over and over and over and over again and I think it's so critical and is this. Pain, which none of us like, pain has a way of moving us to places God has prepared for us. Doesn't mean we have to like it. Doesn't mean we want to pursue it or even smile when it shows up at our door. But this Bible is full of stories that remind us that pain has a way of moving us to a place that God has prepared. And Philip is about to be a great example of exactly that. He doesn't want to leave Jerusalem. It's his home. It's where he's been born and raised. He's been seeing God do all these amazing things. But because of persecution, he's about to scatter. And we're going to watch what God does in his life as a result of his pain moving him to a new place. Watch this in verse 4. So those who had been, say that next word with me, scattered. Do they want to leave? Are they like upgrading their house, saying, you know what, I'm going to take, I'm just going to buy a little bit bigger home. I could use a little bit more square footage, and he's moving up to Samaria. No, they're scattered. They're leaving because they are in, in, in panic mode. There's chaos. They're fearing for their lives. They're only taking a handful of things, and they're leaving everything else behind because people are being dragged from their homes, put into prison, and they're thinking they are next. They can imagine the knock on their door, and they don't want to experience that, so they are scattering. They are fleeing. This is an emergency exit. And while they scatter, it says, watch what they do. They preached the word wherever they went. They're preaching Jesus in Jerusalem. Oh, I find myself in a new place where I'm scattered, where I'm on the run. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to preach the word here too. I'm going to share Jesus wherever I go. And here's the fact that we see over and over again. You cannot share Christ from your comfort zone. It just doesn't work. We see God do things over and over throughout the scripture, but it's always preceded by pain, discomfort, a disorientation. It's almost as if God speaks through it every time in supernatural ways. Pain has a way of moving us to a place God has prepared, which means that when we enter that place of discomfort and pain, what should we do? Exactly what Philip did. Preach the word wherever we go. Now watch as we're introduced to this man. It says... So Philip went down to a city in, say this next word with me, say it nice and strong, say it, Samaria. This is an important place. I would underline that in my Bible. And he proclaimed the Messiah there. So what's he going to do? He's going to keep talking about Jesus wherever he goes. He just knows that's the solution for everyone for their ultimate and greatest need. Some things never change. Philip knows wherever he goes, he's talking about Jesus. He shows up in Samaria. Now, here's what's important about Samaria. Here's a map. 
you'll see that in this place, this is Acts 1.8, lived out in visual form. Those of us who like maps, this is such a great look. Because we see Jerusalem there with the box. Jesus says that we're, to, uh, have the, we're gonna be empowered when the Holy Spirit comes on us and we will be witnesses. Where? First in Jerusalem, that's where they've spent Acts 1 through 7. And then in all of Judea and Samaria, you see it, those two regions, Judea and Samaria, that's Acts 8 through 11. So here we are in Acts 8. It's just now going outside of Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. Philip is in Samaria. And then to the ends of the earth, that's us, beginning in Acts 12 through Acts 28. So they are in Samaria. Here's the problem. Every Jewish person who would have read this passage there in the first century, who would have known of Philip's story, would have all thought the exact same thing. I don't like those Samaritans. Every one of them would have thought that. Why did they have such a strong dislike for the Samaritans? And there are two real simple reasons that we know historically divided the Jewish people from the Samaritans. One is... They just practiced a different religion. They had their own temple, and they didn't just exclude, uh, they didn't uh, have an exclusive commitment to God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Scripture. They, they sort of had a, a multi-theistic view. So they worshiped a little differently. And the second, maybe more relevant to us, is they were also of a different ethnicity. They were a mixed race. They had a mixed heritage. The people from Jerusalem were fully Jewish. The people from Samaria they were maybe half Jewish, part Jewish, but they weren't fully Jewish. They were different. And what they tended to do was people they weren't like, they tended to distrust and to, they were tempted to dislike. I'm glad we don't ever struggle with that. I'm glad in the 20th century we figured that one out. We've moved way beyond that. In 2020, we had no problems with division or separation or seeing issues differently. No, the truth is this has always been with us. This is a very real struggle in our world, just like it was then. So much so that the apostles were hesitant to even go to Samaria because of their differences. How horrible is this story? And yet we look in the mirror and realize it's in us too. You see, this is an age-old problem. Our enemy isn't that creative. He uses the same sin over and over in every generation to try to trip us up who follow Jesus. And that is why it brings us to this point. As, as Dr. Tony Evans says, racism is not a skin issue. It's a sin issue. It always has been, and it always will be. This isn't about what I see and what I think and what I know. No, this is an enemy working in me, trying to mix me up, trying to convince me of something that's not true, because it is sin working itself out in me. It has always been that way. Racism, and here's the thing, it's not enough for me to say, well, I'm not racist, so I'm good. The reality is, it's... The only thing that's worse than love, the opposite is not hate. What's worse than hate is indifference. In the same way, for me to say I'm not racist isn't enough because I could be indifferent to the big issue of sin. Instead of being anti-racist, or instead of saying I'm not a racist, I must be anti-racism. That takes a lot more courage to speak up. That means at the family gathering next time, and Uncle Johnny goes and tells that little racist joke or has an in innuendo, that you have the courage to step up and say, I'm not going to laugh at that. I'm going to let there be some awkward silence to communicate to you that is wrong. 
And I am not going to stand for it anymore. I'm not just going to not be a racist. I'm going to be anti-racism. Why? Because racism is not a skin issue. It is a sin issue. And we see people who are made in the image of God. Every one of us who have, we can look in the eyeball. Guess what? Jesus died for them. They are made in his image. And guess how God sees every one of us? We are sinners in need of a rescue. And he forced Philip to go from Jerusalem all the way to Samaria and said, I know you don't like these people, but pain is going to bring you to a place where I have prepared for you. And when Philip got there, he at least had the wisdom to say, I'm going to tell you about Jesus, the Messiah. What a story. That should be our legacy, right? At the end of the day, what unites us all is we need a Savior in Jesus. And who can we bring along the way to find the solution to their greatest need? May racism never be part of our story. We can't fix it for the world, but we can fix it in our home. We can fix it in our family. We can fix it in our hearts. We can fix it in our marriage. We can fix it in our relationships. We must go first because what we know that the rest of the world doesn't is we're all made in the image of God. Amen? (laughs) Philip gets to Samaria. And as only God can, lives begin to change. There's a cool story over the next 20 verses of a man named Simon who's kind of like a magician or a sorcerer, but he looks nothing like Philip. He, he has no heritage like uh, Philip's. They're very different people, and yet God brings them together, and God does an amazing work in his life. Philip must be thinking, okay, I was comfortable in Jerusalem. Life was good, but God, you moved me. I didn't want to go, but you brought pain into my life, so whew, you brought me here. But now I'm getting to see you move again, and I'm finally starting to get the first hint at being Uh, uh, finding comfort again here even in Samaria and just when he gets to that place guess what God does he moves him again look down at verse 26 because all of a sudden it says now the angel of the Lord said to Philip now go south to the road the desert road this is like the road less traveled as Robert Frost would say that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza Go to some nowhere place where no one is. And Philip's learned his lesson. Because at the beginning of chapter 8, he's like, I'm not going anywhere. I know Jesus, you said go to Judea and Samaria, but I'm here in Jerusalem and I'm good. Persecution and pain comes, has a way of moving us to a place God has prepared for us. And so now the second time, we don't know how much later it is, maybe it's days, maybe it's weeks, God says, okay, I want you to move to another place. Philip's like, okay, I'm in. Do not send persecution this time. I don't want anybody knocking at my neighbor's doors, taking them to prison. I am in. You don't have to send pain my way. I will immediately respond to your voice. And that's exactly what he does. He goes down south to this road between Jerusalem and Gaza. And look who's waiting for him. It's almost as if God is writing a really big story that we just get a peek at every once in a while. And when we learn to fully trust him, we get invited into this big story and we find places he's prepared in advance for us. Look at what happens in verse 27. It says, so Philip started out. I don't want any persecution. I'm in. And on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch. We'll come back to that in a minute, but I would underline that. He's an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man 
had gone to Jerusalem to worship, which is a really odd thing. Now think about what this is. It's an Ethiopian that's sort of north of modern-day Ethiopia. And he's a eunuch, meaning he's been castrated, which means he's trusted within his kingdom, within his palace, because he's not considered a threat. So often they would put in charge, eunuchs would be put in charge of the most valuable properties or sometimes even over the money. And that's exactly what's the case with this man being trusted as a eunuch. He's been put in charge of all the treasury. It's clear he's a man of resources and means because we're going to see in a minute that he's riding in a chariot, something a wealthy person would do. He's leaving his country, something a wealthy person could do. And On his way back, we see that he owns a scroll, a piece of scripture, something only a wealthy person would have. But what's interesting is he goes to the Jerusalem temple to worship, something an Ethiopian would not do. Typically, that would have been back then an area where there would have been more traditional pagan worship, not worshiping the God of scripture. And yet this Ethiopian man stands in the Jerusalem temple worshiping God. Can you imagine how out of place he must have felt in that moment? But he had the courage to do it anyway. And on his way back, his story and Philip's story intersect. And watch what happens as only God could have orchestrated it. Look at the next passage. It says, and on his way home, this is the Ethiopian eunuch. He's sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. So now we know exactly what scroll he has. And the spirit told Philip, who's minding his own business, showing up on a road that makes no sense to be on. But God told him to be there. And God said, go to that chariot and stay near it. Well, now that's a really odd thing to be told, isn't it? I want you to walk over to that chariot and just stay near it. I don't know about you, but I'm going to need a little more instruction. But not Philip, because the last time he was told to do something and he hesitated, he experienced persecution. Now he's just like, God, tell me where to go. And I'm in. And so he goes beside the chariot. Now here's what we're reminded again. You cannot share Christ from your comfort zone. It's always going to be courageous, bold on our part to share Jesus. It's easy to say, I live for Jesus in here. But when you're with your coworkers, when you're with your classmates, when you're with your neighbors, when you're with your family who don't know Jesus, it's like you keep walking up beside the chariot. It's easy to do that even at times. But at some point, you got to break the silence and you got to say, Jesus you got to go for it. You can't just go, well, I hope they just figure it out by the fact that I'm trying to live a decent life and maybe I don't cuss as much as they do. No, you got to do better than that. Sometimes you got to bring it up, Jesus. Like you got to say something about the gospel, something about your Savior to the person who doesn't yet know him. And this is Philip. He's being brought near the chariot. And watch what happens in the next verse. It says, and then Philip ran up to the chariot. And watch this. And he heard the man, didn't see the man, he heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. So now we know what he's reading, and now we're about to be told the exact passage he's reading. And Philip asked him, apparently, I don't know if it's a furrowed brow the Ethiopian eunuch has, but something tipped him off. Philip is close enough to this Ethiopian man where Philip asked this question, do you understand what you are reading? Do you understand it? I know you're reading Isaiah. Do you understand what you're reading? Isn't this an interesting thing that he's so close that he understands what's on this man's heart? He's walking beside him just like God told him to do. 
And he's not offering advice. He's not even sharing Christ yet. He's identifying the need this man has. And that's where he starts the conversation. Do you understand what you're reading? And isn't this just the way of Jesus? Jesus, who was in the ultimate place of comfort, left God and heaven to come down and put on our skin and walk in our shoes before eventually offering us the ultimate solution. And in the same way, we are most Christ-like when we walk alongside someone else and we get in their shoes and we essentially ask this question. What's it like to be you? Philip becomes alongside this Ethiopian eunuch. And he's essentially trying to go, hey, what's it like to be you? I don't know about your home of origin. I don't know about your family of, uh, of origin. I don't know about the struggles that you've had. I don't know about the, the challenges that you currently have. What's it like to be you? We aren't compromised when we go to someone who has different values than us, who sees life differently than we do, who, who views po- politics different than we do, who maybe even views God differently than we do. When we still go up to them and we say, hey, what's it like to be you? Tell me about your story. And we begin the conversation by listening, by empathizing, by walking alongside them. This is what Philip does that is brilliant. He's simply following the Lord's leading. God didn't tell him, go hit him over the head with the thickest Bible you can find. No, he said, just walk alongside the chariot. And he hears him reading a passage and he says, hey, do you understand what you're reading? There's such empathy in the way he approaches his conversation with the Ethiopian eunuch. And then watch his response, the Ethiopian eunuch. He says in response, How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up into the chariot and sit with him. So can you imagine the scene as people are just kind of walking down the road, they look over and they say, Whoa, there's a Jewish man and an Ethiopian man riding on a chariot together. That's an unusual sight. And it's only happening because Philip's been following God and then he's been asking, what's it like to be you? And now he's simply been invited into a close place of proximity. And the only way we can earn the right to share Christ is to be willing to build the bridge and to walk alongside someone in a genuine way and find out what their needs are. And then Luke tells us, the author of Acts, exactly what it was the Ethiopian was reading. Look what he's reading. I love that it gives us this peek into the story. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. You might write in your Bible here, Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 8. This is the exact passage, a very famous uh, passage, prophetic passage about Jesus. It says, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb before its shearers to, is silent, so he did not open its mouth, his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For life was taken, for his life was taken from the earth. And then the eunuch looks at Philip and says, Would you tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? I'm confused. And Philip, being close to him, having walked with him, it says, Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about who? Jesus. 
That's who he's been talking about in Jerusalem. That's who he was talking about up in Samaria. And now that he's on this desert road, it's still who he's talking about. Yet you want to know about the prophet and who it is they're talking about? Guess what? I saw this man rise from the dead. I saw him myself. I interacted with him, and then he ascended into heaven. And for the last few days, we've been in Jerusalem, and all of a sudden the Roman authorities had no explanation for the missing body, and they're trying to shut us down, and so they begin to persecute us. And that's why I'm here. Can you believe that? He's telling the Ethiopian eunuch, that's why I'm here. I know this Jesus. And how could the Ethiopian eunuch not respond but to give his life to this risen Jesus. And then look at the next passage. It says in verse 38. Or verse 36. And as they traveled along the road. I love this. We have a black man, an Ethiopian man. And this Jewish Middle Eastern man. Both are out of place on this desert road. Riding together. And they continue to ride along. And they came to some water. And the eunuch said. Look. Here's water. I'm sure by now Philip's told him the story about Jesus saying that what our first step of obedience after salvation is to be baptized, to go public with our faith. It's not the completion of our salvation. It's the revelation of our salvation. And so the eunuch says, well, what can stand in the way of me being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him right there on the spot man they didn't pre-register they didn't have shorts and a t-shirt they just said right here right now is good enough for me and the holy spirit moved in a supernatural way and a life was changed and as we've been saying that holy spirit is still alive He's still powerful today. And we saw it again last week when seven people went public with their baptism right out here in front. And we got to celebrate their decision, which reminds all of us that as we live our life here in 2021, the Holy Spirit is still alive. He is still powerful. And he is still looking to change lives if we'll just step forward and be used by him. I don't know about you, but that's encouraging to me to know that he's still moving. Amen. And we get to be part of that. Amen. By the way, real quick, before we put that up, I don't know if he's here today or not, but Anthony, which is the man who didn't wear the shorts and shirt in the bottom picture. Here's his cool story. I don't even have permission to share this, but he shared it last week, so I have, uh, I'll, I'll get forgiveness maybe instead of permission. But he ended up coming. He was watching online, had, hadn't been here, and he emailed during the service last week and said, I feel like the Lord is telling me that today is my day to get baptized. Could I do that? We said, come on. And he walked up at the last minute and he got baptized last week as he wanted to step forward. Isn't that a great story? So Anthony, we got shorts and t-shirt. He goes, nope, right here, right now. He was like the Ethiopian eunuch. I'm not messing around. Let's go. I love that. Now watch what happens as the story ends in chapter eight, which is where we'll stop for a while. Look at the next passage, because now it gets unusual, to say the least. Verse 39, it says, And when they came up out of the water, you're not expecting what we're about to read. I'm just going to tell you now. The Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. What does that mean? I'll give you my three-word answer. I don't know. And the eunuch didn't see him again but went on his way rejoicing. 
Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. So did God like teleport him somewhere? I don't know. It's one of the rare moments where this happens in scripture and sometimes it's as if the supernatural does something and it's like, you don't need to know. Just trust that I know what I'm doing, even if I don't explain all the details. And of all the places Philip could have gone, I bet he wouldn't have chosen this area. And he ends up in Caesarea, but I know this about Philip. When he got there, what do you think he taught? Who did he talk about when he got there? Jesus. Because you can't stop Philip from talking about Jesus. You see, pain kept taking him to a place that God had prepared for him. And he just simply showed up and talked about Jesus. And I don't know about you, but that inspires me. To know, one, pain has a purpose. And two, sometimes I don't know the why, but I know what my next step must be. i got to talk about Jesus when I get there. Now, ultimately, here's what we know. Jesus knows your pain. He, he knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to have an impending death. Now, he knows your pain. And he left a place of comfort to come down and enter the ultimate place of pain that God had prepared for him on the cross so that you and I could be rescued. Oh, that's our Jesus. And sometimes we're sent to a place so that we can rescue others. We show them love. We encourage them. We try to offer hope. Ultimately, we share Jesus. Sometimes, because of our pain, we are taken to a place where we need to be encouraged, where we need to be healed, where we need to be shown love and encouraged, and we're humble enough to receive that encouragement from others. But ultimately, what we know is God is writing a big story. And as C.S. Lewis said, if you're here with pain today, God has a way of using pain as his megaphone to talk to a deaf world so that they will see him again. And if you're in a place of pain in some area of your life, could God be inviting you into greater intimacy in this season? And could we with an open hand trust him and say, God, you have a way of taking people to a place that you have prepared for them. Because ultimately what we know is that he redeems all things. And just as he said in John 14, ultimately, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And then he says, I am going to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you will be also. I am going to prepare a place for you. And someday, pain will take us to a place he has prepared for us. This is our one chance to share Jesus. And may we follow Philip's lead, that wherever he leads us, we will share Jesus. Amen. I want to close with these three questions and give you a chance just to wrestle with them throughout the week. Again, if you download the digital bulletin, you'll see these questions there. You can go on the website. You'll see them there as well. Here are the three questions. Number one, are you willing to leave your comfort zone in order to share Christ? Number two, are you currently walking alongside someone who doesn't know Jesus? Finally, are you currently asking the question, what's it like to be you? By the way, parents, this is our best question for our kids as well. Acts 8 is a great model for us to come alongside and ask the question, what's it like to be you? Tell me about it. May our story be 
that we shared Christ despite the pain with people who had a need, but their greatest need was Jesus. And that's who we shared wherever we go. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the promise of your son Jesus. Salvation we enjoy, we celebrate in, but we now want to declare to others. May we boldly go forward like never before in sharing our Savior wherever you lead us. And it's in his name I pray. Amen.